halfway through the first month of 2022. And I have a question for you that might make you squirm a little bit. How are your New Year's resolutions going? I feel like two weeks in is just enough to get us past that initial adrenaline rush that takes us to the gym every day or carries us through the first few days of a new diet plan. Um, so I'm curious, raise your hands, how many of you feel like your New Year's resolutions are going great? You've just been nailing it. Not, not that many hands. Okay, how many people feel like your New Year's resolutions could stand some improvement? A few more, yeah. Um, I can raise my hand for both. I have some that are going really well and some that could be going a lot better. As I was thinking about my, my own goals for 2022, I was wondering how long it really takes for something new to become a habit, like to put it on autopilot, you know? And so I was doing some research and many experts think that on average it takes people about 66 days so just over two months of consistency for our brains to recognize something as a habit. Now what was really interesting to me, I read this in a study done by Harvard last February, is that there's a difference between a habit and a routine. That's probably obvious to a lot of you, but to me, I, I just hadn't thought about it. A habit is technically a behavior done with little or no thought, whereas a routine is a series of behaviors frequently and intentionally repeated. And for a behavior to become a habit, it has to first be a routine. Now I was thinking about how there are certain things that are habits for us that we would feel bad without, like brushing your teeth. Hopefully most of us would feel bad without brushing our teeth daily, and if not, the rest of us are begging you, please reconsider. <laughs> um, a big one for me is morning coffee, or if I'm being really honest, morning and afternoon coffee and sometimes midday coffee. Um, it's an addiction that I'm very comfortable with, so I don't wanna hear about it. But there are lots of other things that we want to be habits that we have to first intentionally make part of our routine if they're ever going to be those things that just happen automatically in our lives. Now why am I bringing this up and making us all feel bad about our New Year's resolutions? That's not my intention, by the way. Um, to make anyone feel bad. But I bring it up because we're in the second week of a series on prayer, and I feel like when we talk about prayer, many of us have the same response that we do with New Year's resolutions. And um, for many of us, it's one of those things that if someone were to ask you, how's your prayer life, or how is the discipline of prayer in your life, we would get a little squirmy. Because prayer can really be one of those things that we know we should be doing more of, or perhaps we know we should be doing it a little bit differently um, if we're followers of Jesus, but we don't really know how. Or it feels really hard to incorporate into our routines. And we maybe have these bursts of energy where we really try to pray more, and then it just kind of fizzles and we feel a little aimless after that. Prayer is hard. It's hard because it requires hard work discipline, focus, and also, I think, dealing with things. The spirit of our age, the spirit of the age in which we live is both tolerant and avoidant. Don't like something? Cancel it. Switch off the news. Shut off the pain. Avoid it. Ignore it. Live in denial of it. But also tolerate everything because to be discerning is to be unloving. 
When you pray, you can be neither tolerant nor avoidant. And that is both what makes it hard and what makes it beautiful. Because to pray, you have to acknowledge pain, your own and others. But in prayer, you bring that pain into God's presence. Today we're going to look at a very specific set of instructions that Jesus gave his disciples about prayer. Now there's a lot of questions that we won't have time to cover today um, that come up. And I think one that comes up a lot when we're talking about prayer um, is what if I have been praying a long time and nothing is happening? Or what if I pray and I don't hear God? Or nothing is, is changing in the things that I've been bringing before him consistently. And that's not the focus of, of what we're going to cover today, but I do want to acknowledge it um, because it can be a barrier for a lot of us in this conversation. And as I was praying about that question this week, um, what came to mind was a story that a professor of mine told me when I was in college and in a similar season like that where it just felt like prayer felt kind of pointless, like I wasn't getting anywhere with God. And um, she told me about a season of her life in which she lived in Dallas. And she would walk to this river in Dallas every single day. And in Dallas, the summers are very hot, so hot that the usually gushing waters of this river would completely dry up. And so the riverbed would just be rock and you know cracked earth there's no moisture at all but inevitably um, when the winter months would roll around again and the rains would begin to fall on the foothills the waters would come back and so she got to see this river at every every season of the year because she walked every day as part of her routine and she used that image um, to compare it to our prayer lives that sometimes we have these seasons that feel incredibly dry but you can take heart because the waters always come back. But you have to be in a position to receive them when they do and to notice when they do. And consistent, habitual prayer keeps us in that position to receive the waters. So how do we pray? How should disciples of Jesus pray? That's the question we're exploring today. And thankfully, we are not the first people to ask this question. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Luke chapter 11. We're going to spend most of our time today in Matthew 6, but I want to start in Luke 11, just the first verse. Um, the chapter opens and Jesus is doing something that he often does. Guess what it is? It's prayer. <laughs> He's praying. Verse 1 says this. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. So Jesus' first disciples are just as confused about prayer as any of us has ever been, but it's because they apparently notice something about Jesus and the way he prays that makes them ask the question. What's interesting to me is these guys are Jews, and in Jewish religious tradition, there are at least three formal prayer times every single day. You can do it in the synagogue or you can do it in the comfort of your own home, but morning, evening, and at midday, you're praying. So these aren't guys who don't pray. In fact, they probably pray more consistently than many of us. Um, so they know how. At least they know how in the traditional way that they have grown up with. 
and something strikes them about Jesus. That could be any number of things. The biblical authors don't tell us, but they do make a point of saying that Jesus often withdrew to pray. So probably he's praying more frequently than just the three times a day that would have been standard. And I imagine that the disciples notice a familiarity he has with the God that he prays to that they maybe don't personally have. Of course, Jesus is more than just a prayer warrior or one of these, these people that we hold in high esteem for their prayer lives because he's the son of God. Um, but he obviously seems to have a prayer life that is visible enough in its power and intimacy that his disciples want what he's got. So how does he answer their question? Well, he answers it here in Luke 11 and also in Matthew 6, and that's where I wanna take us now um, because that's where we're going to study today. And I'd like us to read his response in Matthew 6 out loud together. You ready for this? Matthew 6, 9 to 13 is what we're going to read. It should be on the screens. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. The Lord's Prayer, everybody. This is a very famous prayer. There's probably very few of us that haven't heard it at least once. Um, some of you may even have the words memorized. I've had this prayer memorized for a long time, and I was trying to remember how that happened because I, I have some friends who are Catholic or grew up Catholic, and they have this memorized because many Catholics pray it before bed at night. But I didn't grow up Catholic, and so I was like, I don't know how I learned this. And as I was thinking back, um, a memory came floating from my early childhood years of a strange little doll with um, blonde hair and a purple dress, and when you put her hands together, they were like magnetic, and she would say the Lord's Prayer. And so I did a Google search, and in the archives of eBay, I found this listing for a doll made by the cosmetic company Avon. Um, she's called a precious prayer doll. There should be a picture coming up. Yeah, there she is. This is how I learned the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Um, she's a little creepy, but it makes total sense to me because my grandma who gave it to me, God bless her, she loved Avon. She loved Avon, <laughs> and she loved things like this. They were just, you know, they were kind of cute, but also a little too weird to be cute. But I am so grateful that my grandmother gave me this because um, fr phrases and words, you know, pieces of the Lord's Prayer would come drifting back to me over the years, and I don't think that I really fully understood what the prayer meant, you know, but things like praying that God's will would be done in my life, and for sure asking for forgiveness um, or help to forgive others, um, you know, those things would just kind of sprinkle throughout my life. Um, but it has only been in the last year, oh, I'm glad she's gone, that the Lord's Prayer has really come to my attention as an important part of my Christian life that I've been neglecting. And when I say I've been neglecting it, what I mean is Jesus gives us this prayer and he says, so pray in this way. 
That's Matthew 6. In Luke 11, he says it a little differently. He says, when you pray, say this. What, what do you think that Jesus meant when he said, pray this or pray like this? I think he probably meant what he said, <laughs> but <laughs> so novel. But I, I don't know that I ever really took that seriously. Um, that his instructions to pray this prayer or pray very much like this prayer probably means we should pray very much like this prayer. Um, and I, I think we should. Um, the more that I've studied and, and prayed the Lord's Prayer, the more I have stumbled upon what feels like a universe within it. It reminds me of the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It looks very ordinary. It looks very ordinary, but push open the doors and wander around inside for a little bit and you'll uncover a whole world within it. This prayer is far more than a bedtime prayer or a children's rhyme. It is a summary, a nutshell version of Jesus' entire mission. It is an anthem of the movement that he came to start. What movement is that? Well, Jesus came announcing the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus begins his ministry and tells people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's just a few verses later that Jesus opens up the Sermon on the Mount, which is where the Lord's Prayer is situated, and he begins teaching his disciples what it means to live as members of God's kingdom. We often think of the Sermon on the Mount like it's a series of ethical teachings, and they are ethical teachings, but they are not just that, because Jesus is not just a moral teacher who came to set an example so we could be nice people. Jesus is a king announcing his reign, announcing his kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, but one that is crashing into this world, not to destroy it, but to renew it. And these ethical teachings are his way of setting the expectation of what it means to live as a loyal subject of his kingdom. This might seem like two different ideas, but what Jesus is showing us about his kingdom has everything to do with prayer and vice versa. His teachings on prayer are right smack dab in the middle of this sermon about the kingdom. And I want to warn you that Jesus' kingdom is very un-American. It's, in fact, very countercultural to every culture. So as we study Matthew 6, if Jesus' kingdom makes you a little uncomfortable, we're probably on the right track. So how do we pray in Jesus' kingdom? Well, Jesus answers his disciples starting in Matthew 6, verse 5. It says this, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus does something here that good teachers do frequently. He gives some examples of what not to do. Two examples. First, he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. That is such an intense thing to call someone. And I think when we're reading the Bible and we see the word hypocrite, we often think, oh, like the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were sticklers for the rules, but missed God's compassionate and gracious heart in the process. But you know, 
this could just as easily be about any of us. Because any time I am praying to perform, I am praying with hypocrisy because I've made it about myself. Now this obviously includes when we get up in front of a group or even just pray with one other person and we're trying to impress that person or those people, but praying to perform can happen when I'm alone in my room too. And believe me, I have seen this in my own life, it's sneaky. But it ultimately goes back to a lie we believe about God about having to earn our way before him or, or demonstrate worthiness or that we're really trying here. But that behavior shows us that we're not really praying to the God of the Bible at all. Because the God of the Bible invites us to come to him as children, regardless of our performance. And that relates to the second example Jesus gives of how not to pray. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles with their many words. Now is he saying don't pray for a long time? Absolutely not. Jesus prayed for long periods of time, including the night before he died, you know, was up all night seeking the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he's referring to um, a habit that people who worshiped other gods in the ancient world would do commonly. You can read examples in the Iliad or the Odyssey of these kinds of prayers. Um, and it came from this view of the gods as these fickle beings. Um, and it, you had to basically work to get their attention, to earn their favor. So people would pray these very long, flattering prayers in these pagan temples, just tr you know, trying to get the attention of these gods. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. <laughs> for the same reason, you don't need to perform for God or others when you pray. You don't have to convince the Father to listen to you. He says, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And his logic is so interesting because that's not a reason not to pray for Jesus. For Jesus, that's the reason to pray. God's already listening. He's already paying attention to you. In fact, he is paying such close attention to you and to the details of your life that he knows what you're gonna talk to him about. So just do it. Why? Because there's a reward when we pray in this way. Did you catch that? He says the people who pray in an inappropriate way don't get a reward. Or rather they do, but their reward is just their own self-gratification or maybe popularity or celebrity if they are especially good at performing. So if there's no reward for praying the wrong way, then by the same logic there is a reward for praying the right way. What's the reward? Well, it's not getting whatever you want when you pray. Jesus is getting at a heart posture. If you come to God in the sincerity of your love for him, seeking to invest in your relationship with him, he always rewards that with at least three things, I think. Number one, intimacy with himself. You get to know him by conversing with him. But I think that's usually kind of the end of our discussion about prayer, that it's how you relate to God and it's just a conversation. But there's other rewards too. The second is answered prayer. Again, this is not a vending machine situation, you pray the Lord's Prayer and out comes a new car or a husband. It's not that. This is a father and child relationship. I'm not a parent, but I can tell you, um, as a child of good and loving parents, that when I disobeyed or did something unsafe or hurt someone else or disrespected my parents, not only did it mean I didn't get a treat or a toy or whatever I wanted, but it damaged my relationship with them. 
And that is the make it or break it part of the third reward, which is responsibility. Prayer and investing in the depth and intentionality of our relationships with Jesus opens us up to greater responsibility in the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to be entrusted with greater responsibility in the kingdom of heaven? Then cultivate the kind of life Jesus rewards. Which brings us to the Lord's prayer because it's the kind of prayer Jesus rewards. We'll go line by line, starting in verse nine. Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Jesus is giving us far more than just a way of addressing God or opening up our prayers. He's giving us the foundation that we pray and live from. I am a member of the family. And yet, my father is not just any father. We all have fathers. In prayer, we speak to the Father in heaven. So from the opening lines of this prayer, Jesus is asking us to hold two things in tension. God is both involved in our lives and in charge of the cosmos. We honestly could stop right there. Because do you know how it would change the way we pray if we really believed those two things? If we really believed God cared about the details of our lives? And then who better to have on your team than the creator and sustainer of all? The God who cares intimately about the details of your circumstances also holds the keys to your circumstances. And oh, by the way, the sovereign keys over the entire universe. But there's more than this here too. Jesus' disciples were Israelites, which means they were familiar with calling God Father, but they had a very specific association with it. For Jesus' disciples, God as Father related to the first time God is called Father in the Hebrew Bible, which is in Exodus 4, when Moses goes before Pharaoh and commands him to let the Israelites go from their enslavement. He calls God Father and Israelite his, the Israelites his children. So for Jesus to tell his disciples to call God Father, they know he's telling them to get ready for the new exodus. This is freedom from slavery, from sin, from despair. To call God Father doesn't just communicate intimacy, it communicates hope. Jesus is drawing on all of these things to give us a nuanced picture of the God we're addressing. He is our Father, intimately connected to us and devoted to us, and he is also the almighty God come to set us free. When we pray, we pray in recognition that the kingdom of God has arrived to set people free, and we pray into this reality of greater freedom for ourselves and others. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is a very old word that means to make something holy. Isn't God already holy? Yes, of course he is. But there have been many times throughout history when his name has been profaned or treated as unholy. In fact, every time the Israelites landed themselves in exile because of their sins, people blamed God and profaned his name. And whenever God would bring his people out of exile, it had just as much to do with his name as their well-being. For example, in Ezekiel 39.7, God says, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. When we pray for God's name to be hallowed, we're praying that the nations of the world would see who God really is, that he would no longer have a bad reputation with other people. And we are people upon whom the name of the Lord has been set. So when we pray like this, 
We pledge our lives to carry his name with righteousness and honor, hallowing his name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What exactly are we praying for when we pray for God's kingdom to come? This is really important for us to understand because it's critical to this prayer and to all prayer and to how we orient our lives in God's kingdom. This is that kingdom concept we mentioned briefly earlier. Jesus has arrived, but not randomly. Jesus comes in fulfillment of a story that's been unfolding for thousands of years. It's the story of God and humanity. It's the story you will find in your Bibles. The story you will find in your Bibles is God created a good world where he and humans could dwell together in unified, loving relationship. Humans rebelled, and we continue to ruin ourselves, each other, and God's world. So God, over thousands of years, works with humanity, promising in scripture that he will come again as king to reclaim the earth and rule and reign over his people. So heaven is not just a place you go when you die. It's God's space that once completely overlapped with human space, and Jesus has come to reunite those two realms. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying that heaven and earth would be united fully once more. And it's here that the prayer changes postures. Because the first half of the prayer is focused on God. His name, his kingdom, his will. And the second half is focused on us. Our bread, our sins, our deliverance. And the hinge, the phrase that transitions us from praising God to praying for our own needs is this statement of surrender to his will. And when I say surrender, I don't mean shrugging your shoulders. I guess if God wants to do something, I can put up with it. What I want doesn't matter anyway. That would be fine if our God was remote, detached, and uninvolved. But it won't work for the God Jesus prayed to. It won't work for those of us who have staked our lives upon who Jesus is. This prayer, thy will be done, is the prayer you pray if you are ready to sign on for the kingdom. When you are ready to put your hand to the plow and not look back and really dig in and start following Jesus and furthering his kingdom with everything you have, this is the prayer that orients you that direction and recalibrates everything else in your life so that you can leave behind that which so easily entangles and get going with God. When you get going with God as a member of his family, you can be confident when you ask these next three requests Give us this day our daily bread. There's three requests, bread, forgiveness, deliverance. And I want to point out right off the bat that Jesus could easily have made these individual statements, but he doesn't, even though that's how we usually take them. But being a part of God's kingdom is being a part of the family of God, which means every time I recognize my own needs and bring them before the throne of heaven, it's a reminder and an invitation to pray for and with others too. Provision for others, forgiveness for others, deliverance for others. One of the things I find most fascinating about this prayer for bread, for our daily needs, is that it's not first. When I pray, my needs are usually what's at the forefront of my mind, and they're probably what inspired me to pray in the first place. But Jesus puts this prayer after these three lines of adoration for the Father. Now, this is not to say that we won't have moments or seasons where in our desperation we are not disorganized in prayer. 
and we fall at the Father's feet begging for his help, provision, or intervention, that's okay. But for these other times where we have the privilege of being a little more collected, I think there are multiple reasons for this ordering. The Lord's Prayer invites us to change, not the content of our prayers, but the priority of our prayers. The priority we see here is our adoration of the Father comes first, and then we bring our needs to him. And that's reverent for sure, but I think it's as much for us as it is for him. Because usually when I come all stressed to the Father, and I stop first to acknowledge who he is in his character and his kingdom, by the time I get to my laundry list of deeds, I am far less worried because I've reminded myself who I'm talking to. And you know, God never asks us to deny our desires. Just the opposite, in fact. He invites us to bring them to him. And in the process, our desires get straightened out. Because if I have this desire for a new job, or a spouse, or a better relationship with my child, or a way to pay my bills, if there's anything I'm wanting or asking God for that's not good for me for some reason, as long as I'm praying the first half of the prayer too, and chasing after God's will and his kingdom, any misordered desire that I have is going to get reoriented in the process. So I don't have to bang my head against a wall and try to make sure that my desires are absolutely perfectly in line with what God wants for me. We can stop stressing and just ask. Because if we know who God is, and we just ask like trusting children, we'll find that what Jesus says in Matthew 7, just a few verses later, is absolutely true. He says this, what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Because we have a good Father, when we come to him and ask for bread, our daily needs, we can trust he has so much more in mind. That's the first request, bread. The second request of this prayer is for forgiveness. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We talked earlier about how we live in a culture of tolerance and denial. That's important to acknowledge again here because our culture cheapens sin. And as a result, it cheapens forgiveness. Jesus told a story about forgiveness we know famously as the parable of the prodigal son. In it, a son squanders his family inheritance, runs away from home, lives in sin, loses everything. He eventually comes crawling back to his father but before he can even finish begging just to be a servant in the house, before he's even made it to the doorstep, his father comes running to meet him and embrace him. It's total forgiveness in an instant, the minute the son decides to head homeward. That's the picture Jesus gives us of the father's forgiveness for us. But what if that story was told with the contemporary values of tolerance and denial? We'd say the son was just doing his thing just doing whatever makes him happy. If it feels good to him and fulfills him, that's fine for him. And so he comes home and his father is either tolerant of him, yeah, sure, whatever, it's fine that you're back. Or he is some simpering fool denying it all. Oh yeah, my boy, we don't see eye to eye on everything, but he's a good boy, he's fine. If we cease to acknowledge the severity of sin, we also change the character of God in our minds. 
But the beauty is the moment we acknowledge our sins and ask for forgiveness, we get to experience the running father coming out to meet us and hold us close and restore us fully to the family instantly. And this second half is a hard statement. Forgive us as we forgive others. Jesus says a couple verses later in verse 15, if you do not forgive other people, then your father will not forgive your offenses. I told you this was not American. This is not an equal opportunity statement. It's the kingdom again. Jesus' kingdom has arrived and entrance into it comes through the forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus. But to deny someone else forgiveness once you're a member of the kingdom is to deny the basis of your own new existence. You just can't do it. And this is at the heart of Jesus' teaching. He tells religious leaders in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is not a first priority, second priority statement. Like first this, then this. It's a both and. Now this teaching about love and this teaching about forgiveness are very similar. Jesus is saying, to be forgiven, you have to forgive others. And to love God, you have to love others. But it's not because that's how you earn his love or his forgiveness. We can't earn God's love or forgiveness. But what Jesus is saying here is way more profound than a conditional statement. He's just recognizing, if you are unable to forgive others, you won't be able to recognize your own sin and receive God's forgiveness of you. What's most encouraging to me about this is once again, the prayer doesn't start here. We don't come to God first as prodigals returning home. We are not permanent prodigals. We are permanent children, which is why we start by calling God Father, and then once we're seated around the dinner table with our Father, we can share with him whatever we need to own. These commandments are really hard. which is why the prayer concludes with this line. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This word temptation is really probably better translated as testing. James 1 tells us God isn't tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt anyone, but he does test his people sometimes. And so Jesus is saying we should pray not to enter into those tests because they're hard. And it's a prayer that we would be able to resist the temptation we experience on a daily basis too. As far as being delivered from evil, it should be no surprise to any of us that there is evil in the world. And when we identify ourselves with Jesus, we can expect to experience the same trials and tribulations he did. He was tested in the wilderness, taunted by demonic forces, criticized by spiritual leaders, threatened and oppressed by political forces, betrayed by his friends, and rejected by a good chunk of the people he knew. When you sign up for the kingdom of Jesus, you are signing up for battle. It's a battle against our own sin, for sure, but it's also a battle for the world. The Lord's Prayer ends with this deliver us line, and it's a prayer for the world to be delivered. This is not a prayer from a distance either. It's a prayer that lights the way as we walk forward into the darkness to take part in other people's deliverance from evil. So that's the Lord's Prayer. There's one other line that's in some some of your Bibles, um, not all. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. 
And that's actually not in the earliest manuscripts because it was probably added later by early Christian churches as a way to just kind of wrap up or conclude the Lord's Prayer. So we won't linger there today, but it is beautiful. And I personally love to conclude with that line when I pray the Lord's Prayer. So as we wrap up, I want to leave you with two thoughts about prayer. The first is very practical. The Lord's Prayer is clearly not a tame prayer, but it is a template. It's the answer to our original question, how do we pray? Jesus gave us a template. That doesn't mean you shouldn't ever pray again without utilizing the Lord's Prayer. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing, which would be really hard to do if all we ever prayed was the Lord's Prayer. But I think it is a really helpful tool if you want to make prayer a habit that eventually becomes a part of your daily routine because it's all-encompassing. Most of the requests that we encounter in life are represented there. And what I want to suggest is that you start praying the Lord's Prayer daily, but use it as an outline. I like to pause after every major phrase or thought and fill in what comes next with some of my own thoughts. Our Father in heaven, you are good and glorious the maker and sustainer of the universe, defender of the weak and helpless. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Help me not to root my identity in anything else today other than being your child. Help me rest in that security. Hallowed be your name. Lord, I pray that your name would be lifted high among the nations and in the earth. Don't let anything I do today profane your name, etc., etc. It's an outline. And it's a really beautiful and simple way to incorporate prayer into your daily rhythms and to pray specifically and in a focused way. It keeps us on track and praying for the right things. And Jesus himself commanded it, so you know you're praying how he would. And as we make an intentional effort to pray it daily as part of our routine, prayer will eventually become more natural. The second thing I want to leave you with is an encouragement and challenge. If this is a prayer for the kingdom, and it is a prayer for a kingdom that is just as much invading earth as it is already in heaven, then we can't just pray the Lord's Prayer. We have to live it. This is a prayer that embodies Jesus' mission to the world and the way we're supposed to live and interact with our Christian brothers and sisters. And it would be very natural for you to say, well, the church doesn't look very much like Jesus' kingdom. Or most churches don't anyway. And you might be right. But what are we doing about it? It is never too late to reclaim the vision. It is never too late to lift our eyes to higher ideals and get after the mission of Jesus, which may involve calling our church communities higher it will, I am sure, involve changes to our own lives. And it starts with this prayer. This prayer isn't magic. But when we pray in the way Jesus taught us to, invoking the name of the king of the kingdom, things in our lives and in the world jump to attention. And our hearts change in the process so that we might be able to truly proclaim and see in action that closing line. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. 
Would you guys stand and close in prayer with me? I think it's only fitting that we close by praying the Lord's Prayer. You can pray out loud with me or you can just sit in the stillness and receive from the Holy Spirit. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week.